Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change. This guy would come and stand in front of me. He would place himself in front of me and plant there for the game with his arms crossed, kind of just smiling at me. And it was the weirdest thing. Like, so I would get physically ill and have to like run off the track and sit down and like literally curl up in a ball and try to hide myself. And this was my experience. So again, the drinking got really, really bad really fast. It was already... I'm sure it would have gotten to that point anyway. I'm basically 100% sure. But it really rapidly progressed. So yeah. So at this point, I'm drinking to not think about it. I'm becoming promiscuous. That's the route that I chose to take at the time because I needed to prove to myself that I could have a normal sex life. And that was just not happening. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change a Recovery Podcast. My name is Ashley Loeblassingame, and I am your host. Today, we have my friend, Lindsay. Lindsay was a high achiever from a young age. She started dance gymnastics and singing classes at age three. She joined the pageant circuit at 12 and immediately had success. The achievement of it all brought peace to her turbulent home with an alcoholic father. She eventually found success that she was looking for when she became Miss Teen Arizona, but it led to a strange splitting of herself. In one life, she was a pageant queen riding in parades and talking to kids about not drinking or using drugs, all while heavily partying and on the road to her own addiction. Then a sexual assault and other major life events caused her to have a mental breakdown, which had her disappearing for a night in Mexico, fleeing from non-existent Mexican federales, and diving deeper into her own growing problem. It wasn't until she received an aggressive DUI from an accident that found her car wrapped around a tree with a passenger in the car that things started to change. She was sent to Tent City Jail in Arizona and then to treatment, which led her to her eventual recovery. Today, she is 16 years clean and sober. Lindsay's story of achievement plus trauma is a familiar one in our addiction community. And I'm so glad she's been able to find peace and also recognize just how difficult the combination of pressure plus trauma can be. So if you are out there feeling the incredible weight of trauma and pressure, please reach out. We can point you to the people who can help. This was so much fun for me, my friend, Lindsay. As you will hear, we have a funny story, a funny origin story, if you will, of how we know one another. Lindsay is such a great example of not only getting sober young, but what it can look like, how alcoholism does not discriminate. She had, for all intents and purposes, everything perfect on the outside, cheerleader, dance, scholarship, pageant, Miss Teen Arizona. Lindsay is such an amazing example of how our insides and outsides sometimes don't match. Miss Teen Arizona on the outside, alcoholic, hating herself on the inside. And it really, really shows us alcoholism, addiction, whatever you want to call it, does not discriminate. And that you can do all the things, you can have all the pageantry, if you will, on the outside and still struggle and still need help on the inside. So I don't want to give away any more of her story. I want you to listen to it. It's incredible. And I hope you enjoy this super fun episode. So without further ado, I give you Lindsay. Let's do this. You're listening to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. We are a community of recovering people who have overcome the odds and found the courage to change. 
Each week, we share stories of recovery from substance abuse, eating disorders, grief and loss, childhood trauma, and other life-changing experiences. Come join us no matter where you are on your recovery journey. Lindsay, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. (laughs) I'm so excited. We're going to start with a super easy icebreaker. Okay, so raise your hand if you've had sex with my husband. Hand raise. (laughs) Oh. I, had, I, I couldn't help myself. I couldn't help it. That was the, that was the nice version. I couldn't help myself. Listen, Ashley, we've all been there. Yeah. We all, I mean, you and I. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And half of Newport Beach, but that's okay. Uh, but I love it. Well, so I just, I'm really excited. Most people probably don't know, but you and my husband dated years ago and we've been able to have an awesome friendship since then. And we'll talk about that later, but I just, I had to, I had to do it. (laughs) I think it was a perfect start, honestly. Yeah. 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 Let's get that out of the way. So, okay. How long have you been sober? I've been sober 16 years now. My sobriety date is December 24th of 2005. So Christmas Eve of 2005. Christmas Eve. Yeah. You're welcome, Jesus. Happy yeah. birthday. You know? Happy birthday. I'm sober for your birthday. Yeah. That I'm redeemed. Funny. Christmas, your first sober Christmas. Was that amazing? I'm sure. You know, yeah, no. <laughs> it was... Uh, and we can get into this a little, in a little bit, but like I went to rehab on the 26th. So I... And that was like part of my last bit of control was giving the stipulation of, well, I want to be home for Christmas. My Grammy was older, probably didn't have much longer. So I wanted to spend the holiday with her, but nobody had told me that you completely get annihilated before you go into rehab. So I just didn't have that fact. So I was actually sober. Yeah, no, nobody, nobody filled nobody me told in. You. So. Yeah. yeah. But it was a sober, a great sober Christmas. <laughs> I'm sure it was amazing. I was just self-pity and shame and yeah. <laughs> self-loving. Yeah. Really uh, good. Yeah. It's true what they say. Nobody comes in on a winning streak. No. I sure as shit did not. Tell me, you grew up in Arizona. Your dad stopped drinking at an early age. Was that... Do you have alcoholism in your family? Absolutely. Yeah. So my grandfather, my my father's father was a heavy alcoholic, severe alcoholic, untreated his entire life until he eventually developed Alzheimer's and forgot that he drank or smoked or anything. And then he was, you know, an angel there at the end. But that was not the case for my dad growing up. So my dad was raised in that household. And then my dad was also an alcoholic. He quit drinking when I... I don't know if it was when I was born or... I think it was a little bit after because I remember him like having a beer at like a, a family gathering or they had some friends over and I because because he gave I had a little bit of beer and I loved it from an early age so I do remember that as we do yeah yeah so he he had quit drinking though when I was young and was kind of left with you know everything that comes with being dry you know and I didn't realize that at the time but it took me until adulthood and getting sober and working a program to understand that that you know I just saw this really angry guy who had all of these emotions that he couldn't figure out and was crawling out of his own skin and again I see that now but as a kid I just saw this guy that was really mean to my mom and would kind of like and I saw my mom like this really sweet woman as like almost being preyed upon right so like I at a very early age associated emotions and sweetness and kindness with weakness. 
And I associated anger and all of that with kind of power because I saw that control. So yeah. And I think too, it was nice getting sober and being able to look back and see like he just did the best he could with the tools that he didn't actually have at the time. You know, he just, he didn't have a way of getting through it. And so, so yeah. And you know, it's funny because I was, I was actually talking to your husband about this. And for the longest time, when I would tell my story, I would start with, you know, oh, I had a great upbringing. I had a really regular childhood. My parents supported me. My parents did. They supported the hell out of me. They loved me. Anything I wanted to do, they backed me on it. I was a really gifted, you know, I was gifted a lot from them. But then in turn, so now I'm doing therapy as an adult. And, you know, after working the stuff, like all of the things that we do, right? Now I'm able to look back at it and be like, oh, no, that wasn't, that wasn't a normal upbringing. That was like the verbally abusive environment. So it's just crazy, like how things change or like as a kid, what you do to like survive it or tell yourself or whatever else. I've had so many friends tell their story and at one whose parents were in a biker gang and that just, and then he was like, so I had a normal child. I'm like, what? But I've had so many friends tell their story. Like I had a normal childhood. Everything was fine. I had no trauma. I blah, blah, blah. And then they start to dig it up. And the reality is we don't, we're not born knowing what trauma is. We're not born knowing what's normal. What's not like we think whatever is happening in our house is normal. That's so it makes sense that we would be like, I don't know what's wrong with me. I did grow up in a normal house. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. So all of that to say that I realized at an early age too, that when I was achieving things, when I was performing and doing things and it was like this positive attention came around and that kind of stuff, all of the verbal stuff, the kind of emotional torment that was put aside and everybody kind of band together and supported whatever it was I was working towards. So at a very early age, achieving equal peace to me or like, you know, it was just a way to appease everybody. And so that's kind of where I took it. And you're an only child. Yeah. You know, and the daughter. Miracle baby. (laughs) Miracle baby. Was that the case? Yeah. It took my parents eight years to have me. And yeah, there were miscarriages before me. So it was a big deal. I'm reminded of this to this day. Right. Right. (laughs) When did you start doing pageants? I started doing pageants when I was 12, which is actually kind of late. I feel like a lot of girls even get into it when they're like five, you know, like it's a very early start deal. I started dancing when I was three. I was put in dance class when I was three. And then, yeah, the pageants came along after there was dance and singing and singing lessons and gymnastics, like all the things, right? So one of my girlfriends actually that was in dance classes with me had been doing pageants. And I saw that happening and I was like, oh, cool, I'm in. So of course I tell my parents, they rally behind me because again, like that dynamic can be more than one thing. So they're they're very supportive. They get me into it. My mom is like loving it because it's, you know, all the outfits and the routines and the, you know. Yeah, yeah. Tell me. And it was actually, I recall, I was thinking back on this and it was around the time of like, I'd been doing pageants for maybe like a year or two. And then that was when like John JonBenet Ramsey disappeared. And so me and a couple of friends were like interviewed on the news about it. And it was like this, I was put in this like weird situation where... What did you say? I mean, I don't think I processed it as a child that like, so it was really just like, they wanted us to be like, pageants are great, you know? Got it. Got it. Okay. And that's what we did. Yeah. Because they were, they were, that was where a lot of my friends were at that point. And, and I was highly competitive. And again, I had like tied in achieving with my self-worth. So (laughs) very into it. So yeah. And then I did pageants for mm, some years. I stopped like right around probably middle school, but right when I like felt a little uncool doing it, honestly. 
which is around that time. Yeah. Okay. But you loved it. It wasn't something you were forced to do. No, I don't see it as being forced to do it. I think my mom was thrilled that I wanted to do it and did strongly encourage me after I like voiced that I was interested. But again, just like being a very competitive person and wanting to win. It was a great environment to do that. Yes. What did achieving look like for you as your life continued? And because this is how you identify getting love and acceptance and validation. How did that play out? I mean, it continued until alcohol came into play. I had stopped doing the pageants. I was still dancing. I was, you know, in school, my mom was a teacher at my school. So there was no such thing as like a B. (laughs) My mom was friends with all my teachers. So I worked my butt off through high school. I was on the palm line and dancing. I had straight A's and was doing college classes. I think I I graduated with like a 4.39 GPA, which was because of those college courses that I was taking. And then I got back. I I was encouraged to do Miss Teen Arizona. And that's Miss... you know. So I did that and uh, won that. And they were told... You were told there's no way you were going to win your first year, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It was kind of a thing where there had been other mothers that talked to my mom and were like, that's great that she's doing it. It's going to, you got to put in the time. Like you got to do it a couple years at least to like be in the top. So yeah, I, but we were really serious about it. And I had a pageant coach and all of the things that come along with it and a personal trainer. And and yeah, I, I managed to win my first year and that was really exciting. And of course, by this point also, I had been introduced to alcohol. So I was a junior and I started dating a senior guy and he was really cool and he drank and he partied. And I was like, cool, I can do that too. But again, this was like very fun, very new, very fresh. And I just remember, you know, when I was drinking, it was like the achievement piece or whatever else, whatever else I was, whatever face I was putting on to be okay, or like to make the situations around me be okay. That didn't matter. And I just felt good. It just felt good. And so that was like my first intro to it. And I enjoyed the feeling. So I enjoyed the parties. And so I had one Miss Teen and I would... You had to make appearances. So you'd go around and you'd talk to high school students or or actually, I'm sorry, younger kids than that. But you do like the parades and things like that. And I just remember, I think we got like linked up with like a D.A.R.E. program at some point because I was like talking to kids about like, don't drink or do drugs. And then I was going and partying with my friends. And, you know, that was the experience. But then the partying, I put it on the back burner because I had to get really serious about Miss Teen USA. And so that was a two-week process in Texas. We were all on site. I had two personal trainers leading up to it, two pageant coaches. I had a wardrobe that had been crafted for me. I had a stylist. I had a hair and makeup person that had trained me on everything to do. I mean, it was like there was no more preparation that I could do. Yeah. I was like ready to go. I was ready to win again. And I got there and I looked around... And I didn't have alcohol to help ease anything, but I looked around and I was there with 51 other girls that had worked just as hard, were just as prepared. I looked around and just thought to myself, like, this is, I might not, I might not win this. I was already the thinnest I had ever been in my life. Like I had dropped so much weight before getting there. I probably dropped another 10 pounds while I was there for two weeks. I don't know how. I really didn't have anything else to lose. But that was the mindset. Everybody was highly competitive. Everybody was on their game. Like any spare moment, girls were doing push-ups or sit-ups or running or whatever, you know, just trying to like be ready for the show. And I had a full-on mental breakdown there. It was the first time that all of the hard work that I had put in might not add up to what 
I thought it would be. And therefore, I might not be what I thought I was. And I just, I lost it. A lot of us did it. We just kind of spiraled. And like, again, like I wasn't eating like hardly anything while I was there. Just trying to like cut a little bit more before I went on. I was already in my head when I went into the interview with the panel of judges that wasn't televised, like the pre-interview. I don't think I did that well because I was already just like doubting myself. It was like, as soon as I got there, I just started spiraling out. And so, so yeah, that interview didn't go great in my opinion. Like I knew I could have done better. Swimsuit and evening gown were televised. But yeah, and then they narrow it down to like top 10. And then those 10 go on and do questions and things like that. But the questions don't matter if it's based on looks, right? Or they do matter. The interview is a big portion of the scoring. Okay. I don't remember the percentage, but... but something they care about that you have to say. <laughs> does kind of matter. Yeah. <laughs> Just unclear. Right, right, right. I'm like, why do they? It's interesting too, that a lot of the, how old were you? Like 17, 18? I was probably 17 at that point. Yeah. It's interesting that you said that a lot of the girls probably spiraled, right? Because it's something where when you're an achiever, and I, I relate to this because this happened to me in college, where as I was going, I was always the I could I get by easily, whatever. And I got to business school and I had my ass handed to me and was like, holy shit. I'd like these people are, you know, and it's, and you, when you're in small ponds or when you're the top of whatever it is, you don't know that there are sharks out there. And I think it's interesting. A lot of that, a lot of the, the girls felt that way. And of course you are literally being judged on how you look. So to say like, like the best, you know, don't compare yourself, right? Or like, yeah. no, literally you have to compare yourself. Like that is your job and everybody, you don't want to let your family down. You don't want to, it's on TV, yeah, we had the big send-off party where like 20, 30 people came over and threw me a party. And you've got all these people telling you like, Arizona hasn't won yet. We really need... Like, this is your year. Like, you're going to do it. You know, I had so many people telling me that. Like, you can do this. You're like the closest we have. I'm sure they tell everybody that every year. But yeah, I just... There was so much pressure on me to succeed. And I definitely felt that going into it. Do they do anything for... Is there any help in any of this for what to do skills-wise when you don't win based on your looks? don't know that there is, but I do feel like at that point, a lot of us had already started making college plans. You know what I mean? Like we were all around that age and that's part of like what you send them for your bio is like what your future plans are, right, what, right, how right. you're going to do that. So yeah, at that point, fortunately for me, I had already, again, back to the high achieving, I had full ride scholarships, academic scholarships, because again, like a B was not, not yeah, flying. Yeah, not gonna happen. yeah. So I had, you know, the scholarships. I had made it into the dance program at U of A and that was third in the nation at the time. So it was really hard to get into. I was waitlisted the first round and I was heartbroken. And then they told me that I got in. So there was that. And I had auditioned for the, the U of A palm line and made it onto that. And so that was, you know, I've had a lot to do. I had a lot to get to. If I didn't, I, that mental breakdown <laughs> lasted a lot longer. And I do think that it, it had enough of an effect that when I did get to college and I was on my own, I was free as a bird. I didn't have my parents around. I could really enjoy alcohol the way that I wanted to. And that's exactly what I did. Yeah. I think interesting, like your mom's in school, like I'm seeing this picture, right? Dad is 
giving love when there's achievement, right? Mom is literally a teacher at your school, knows your school. These pageants are based on your looks and your achievement. You're talking about your achievement. You're talking about how you look all through this. You're dancing, you know, you're on stage like you, it is literally this whole, everything is based on that. And you're being watched. Like you're used, like you are always being watched. And I'm thinking to myself, like you had this job almost of putting on like the put together, the almost like innocent, right? Like nobody wants a Yankee mm-hmm. pageant girl, right? Like they're trying to make you look innocent whilst, I mean, maybe while still, <laughs> so you have this whole persona, right? And I can see getting to college and being like, I want to just go hard, especially if you have this link of alcoholism. Yeah. So you weren't getting into trouble with alcohol in high school. It was just like here and there. I was starting to party more frequently. I was dabbling in, you know, mixing pills with alcohol or whatever else. That's what, again, like friends were doing it. So I was doing it. I had tried smoking weed many times. I unfortunately think I'm allergic to weed. So it never went well. Ever, ever. Yeah. (laughs) Awful. I hate it. My ear canals and my nose and throat would burn every time. It's the weirdest thing. Like the the key, the key to both of our stories is every time, right? Yeah. Like that's the key because I was like, no, this time, like I'm gonna (laughs) continue. Like it clearly fucked my world. I hated it. It fucked me so much. Do you know how many times (laughs) I continued to smoke weed? Like, and it's every time, right? I didn't even, yeah. I love that you heard that. I didn't, you didn't even register with me, but like, yeah, it wasn't that I just did it once and was like, oh, this isn't for me. Like it was a process. It'll get better. I got to just put in the, (laughs) yeah. It wasn't even like a process of elimination. It was elimination. It should have been elimination every single time. But oh, yeah. yeah. Like, oh, I don't like this. I shouldn't do this, but I'm going to do this. <laughs> You're yeah, all doing right, this and better than nothing. So college, you're, you know, the hot blonde Miss Teen Arizona. I mean, I would be like, oh, by the way, I'm Miss Teen Arizona. Like you're on the palm line. I don't even know what that means, but it sounds like it's really good for dating football players. Asking for a friend, how do you party and go to college? Well, I don't know that I'm the person to ask because I didn't do it very successfully, but it started out okay. And you know what? And so like the first night, one of the first nights that I was there, we had just been to a party and I called my mom. Cause again, like I'm a competitive person. I'm going to win. If I'm drinking, I'm going to win at drinking. I'm going to drink more than anybody else there. I'm going to stay up later than everybody else there. You know? Right. Right. So it's one of the first nights of the week that I'm there and I call my mom and it's way too late to be calling my mom and I'm hammered. And I'm just like, mom, <laughs> you don't have to worry about me. I can drink all these guys under the table. Like this is what I'm telling my mother. Yeah, yeah. And she's like, Oh good. Yeah. Great. Thanks. For I think she literally, she's like, no, that's not good. Be careful. Yeah. But yeah, so it was, there were plenty of opportunities being on. So the Palm Line is like the dance team and we would have parties with the basketball team or have parties with the football team or whoever else, you know, there was, it was U of A is a big party school. So there are endless opportunities. I could always find a party to be able to indulge myself at or start one. So (laughs) 
<laughs> start my own little party. Start my own. Yeah. Did you feel like part of the cool kids? Like, was that something that was different for you or you were cool all in high school? Like that just continued. I wasn't. So in high school, like I wasn't, I wouldn't say that I was cool to begin with. I think my mom was honestly more popular than me. And she was a teacher. She's like everybody's favorite teacher. So until I started drinking and then I got in with this crowd that I had considered to be really cool. And so, yeah, I think that definitely carried over into college. I think college is like a weird thing where like, there's no like cool and uncool anymore, but I certainly hung out with the people that partied and it was a good time. It was a really great time to start, you know, like I'm getting out of myself. I'm out of my head. I feel good. I'm having a blast. I'm, and then I, you know, inevitably start losing control of it. And like anything else, that was probably my second year into college. I just started getting really wild when I would drink. I would get belligerent when I drank. I would put myself in really questionable situations when I drank. I my would, favorite. Oh, yeah. I would disappear. <laughs> Only questions. That's it. Yeah. No answers. Just questions. You're not worried about me. I'm not doing it right. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, I mean, in Arizona, we're right near the border of Mexico. So that was a lot of our, you know, we would go, we would just cross the border and go to Mexico for any weekend or whatever that we wanted to. And there were many times, like multiple times that I would disappear from my friends in Mexico. And this is like when we all had like maybe flip phones. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Yeah. And so by some miracle, I found my friends the next day, you know. Oh, you disappeared for... All night, girl. All All night. night. All night. Yes. And so... (laughs) But then come rolling up with my flip-flops in hand the next day, you know. (laughs) Hey, guys. (laughs) They would all be like, screw you. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, senoritas. So yeah, I would put myself in questionable situations, whether I was in Mexico or back at college, whatever it was. I was driving drunk. I was starting to lash out at friends. It was weird. Like I would just get really, it was like all of the emotions that I didn't allow myself to feel. At first, alcohol helped me not feel those. And then it just gradually stopped working or actually like magnified those things and like oftentimes turned it into rage. (laughs) So I would just start fights with other groups of girls or what I mean, I was not, I could not have been fun to be hanging out with. I would have hated myself if I were hanging out with right. me. Were you the one that everyone was like, who's going to babysit this bitch tonight? I'm sure I would. You know what? And I, toward the end of my drinking, I actually remember a friend coming up to me and being like, hey, Lens, like, are we going to be cool tonight? Are we going to have a good night? And I, in that moment, I had enough clarity because I'd already been pre-gaming to think, well, that's a weird question. Like, why are you asking me that? Of course, we're going to have a good night. And it's now I can see because I was... A psychopath. <laughs> so yeah, that was like right. You know, they were they were testing the limits on what their night was going to be like. Poor things. Yeah. Was there anything that really escalated the drinking? Right? Is there sometimes stuff? There's something that happens that just is like accelerant. Yeah, absolutely. I think like a lot of women in college, there was an assault that happened. It was something to where it was hard for me to come to grips with it because it was someone that I was interested in. I was interested in the situation when we began and then something just turned and I just no longer wanted to be part of it. And that didn't happen. But it was like, even after the fact, it was like my brain just could not compute. I had roommates, this guy left. And when he left, I even turned to one of my, my roommate came out and was like, what have you been doing? And I was like, oh, 
I just had sex, you know, like it's, but that wasn't it at all. And it took me a long time to process it, but I had already started processing it by just trying to control things. Right. So like trying to get some kind of control back after feeling so completely taken advantage of. And so I dabbled with a little bulimia. I'm terrible at it. As we do. Same. I got to the... I ate sushi and I tried and I was like, oh, no, 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 no. We're not doing that sushi. Like I, I was committed until that point. And I was like, I guess I'm not bulimic because I'm not fucking throwing $100 worth of sushi. It's just not happening. <laughs> For me, it was pizza. And I don't... I didn't... You know what? I... <laughs> not good with the angles. Like I didn't have the experience to know how to angle it. And so it all just, you know, all came back up. It's terrible. And I just looked in the mirror. I was like, this isn't for me. This is not for me. me. Yeah. Yeah. Disappointed in myself. Truly. (laughs) My sister and I actually tried it together. (laughs) Bonding. No, my God. Um, As we do. As we do. Naturally, I was like, I don't know. They say it's a problem, but we're trying to control all the things. Yeah. So, yeah. So, there were, I, I definitely had grasped for different ways to feel not like a victim or whatever that was. And alcohol was absolutely a key player in that for me. I mean, I I started my drinking took on a purpose, more of a purpose than it had. It was to numb out whatever kind of I had a lot of shame packed around that. I had a lot of self-loathing that I would have let that happen to me. I was really upset with myself that I would allow that. That's how that was my thinking at the time, right? That I would allow that to happen. Uh, that same situation happened to me in sobriety. And, you know, someone, I went into the room, I was participating and then I was sober and it took a turn. And one of the things that went through my mind, and I'm curious if this is relatable, was, wait, 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 wait. I've been in way... I was like, I'm hanging out with bikers and gang... Like, I'm hanging out in all these crazy situations. All these people who, questionable at best, have a full record. This person you know, goes to UCSD and is a soccer player and like nothing. And this, and my brain, like you said, like it literally couldn't make sense of it because I had been in so many dangerous situations and this just wasn't, it didn't yeah. seem dangerous until it did. And I didn't react the way I thought I would. Absolutely. Yeah. So exactly that. I was sober when it happened. And I oftentimes at this point wasn't sober. So for me, that was another level of like, well, how dare I, if I'm sober, right? how did this happen? You know? And also going back to like, I had interest in this guy right? until something in one moment of that situation changed for me. And I still like, don't know why my feelings toward him changed, but I just didn't want to be there. And so, okay. So the other thing is that he didn't see it that way either. He, I don't, at least I, that's what I think. And I think he took offense to me. I told some close friends what had happened once I could come to grips with it. And I don't know if word got out, but it got back to him maybe. And he was very unhappy about that. And he, because I was on the palm line in the dance team, we cheered at the games. We would dance at the games. So I would be down on the track at football games or on the basketball court at basketball games. And this guy would come and stand in front of me. He would place himself in front of me and plant there for the game with his arms crossed, kind of just smiling at me. And it was the weirdest thing. Like, so I would get physically ill and have to like run off the track and sit down and like literally curl up in a ball and try to hide myself. And this was my experience. So again, 
the drinking got really, really bad, really fast. It was already, I'm sure it would have gotten to that point anyway. I'm basically hundred percent sure, but it really rapidly progressed. Gasoline on that fire. Absolutely. So yeah. So at this point I'm drinking to not think about it. I'm becoming promiscuous. That's the route that I chose to take at the time because I needed to prove to myself that I could have a normal sex life. And that was just not happening at all. <laughs> I mean, I also uh-huh. feel bad for these men that thought they were going to have a good time with me. Oh, and yeah. I'm already very drunk because I had to get very drunk to be able to sleep with them right. or fool around or whatever we were going to do. And then I would inevitably either freak out cry, throw up. <laughs> I mean, there's always something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, every man's dream. <laughs> you know, when yeah. I think sexy, yeah, 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 I yeah. think projectile vomit. So yes, yes, yes. That's, uh, yeah, I think, you know, it's funny when I, the promiscuity for me, there were a lot of times where I didn't want to deal with the possibility of that person saying no. And Mm. so I just went through with it and like drinking, like I just, it was like going in that direction. And even if I was, I was just like mm, almost this understanding that I didn't want to create another situation where I had been taken advantage of. So I'd rather say, I'd rather participate. Absolutely. That doesn't happen. And I think that's a lot of like, we're trying to make sense of, we're trying to get a hold of this thing. Plus you are building your sexuality. Like you are literally trying these things. It's part of what everybody's doing and you have all this baggage and you're getting intoxicated. Like, yeah, you're going to, it's all of it's going to come out and maybe even projectile come out. All All of the feelings. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hello, beautiful people. If you're listening to the show, you're a part of my community. And I'm so appreciative of that. And if you've been listening for a while and thinking, how can I get more connected? Where can I find more people like me? I want to talk to you about lionrock.life. Lionrock.life is a community aimed at providing support to people just like you and me. They offer 70 plus support group meetings a week for folks in recovery, as well as adult children of alcoholics and addicts, those who are struggling with anger or deep in their grief, and many more topics like these. Each group is different with peer support facilitators bringing their unique style to every support group meeting. Facilitators range from licensed counselors, trained peer support providers, and people with the best heart, soul, and powerful, relatable experiences. Everyone is accepted into our community, no matter where they are in life and no matter what they're doing in the process or what they're recovering from. Because you listen to this show, we'd like to offer you one month free to try it out. All you need to do is go to lionrock.life or download the Lionrock Life app, create an account, and at the checkout, enter the promo code COURAGE. That's lionrock.life and enter promo code COURAGE to try it free for yourself for one month. And now back to the show. 
how long did that... So that accelerates it, you know, start to sleep around. So, okay. So everything, we're starting to die inside, right? Bit by bit, piece by piece. And yeah. tell ourselves the story of like, I'm in control. I'm just a bad boozy, you know, bougie bitch, whatever. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, you know, I'm the queen of U of A. I'm going to whatever. Like we will tell ourselves whatever story it was that we need to have. When does that story start to crack? When do you start to have cracks in it? So you reminded me too, because I used to say, we're going to black out tonight. Like that was my signature phrase because I knew internally. My I knew, signature phrase. I knew deep down I was blacking out regardless. Yeah, so if yeah, I yeah. said it, then I had control over it. Like I'm aiming for this, you know? Yes. Good call. <laughs> no, I like it. I, I it like worked. it. I, I recently yeah. learned what brownout is. I was like, oh, there's this. Wait, what's brownout? I love you so much. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's a thing. Brownout is a thing on your way to blackout that you and I fucking jumped over. <laughs> oh, we hurdled that bitch. Like <laughs> Olympic hurdled over where you apparently remember like like soft piece. It's like a, a soft filter on your way to blackout. that. Yeah, no, no. I was like, no brown. <laughs> What's well, that's cool if people could <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. My sisters taught me about brownout. I was like, oh, is that a thing? Browning out? Yeah. That's so funny. So no, black straight blackouts. Straight yeah. Black. Yep. Okay. Good. I so yeah, again, I'm I'm my friends are walking on eggshells around me at this point. It is absolutely unraveling. I'm choosing to drink rather than go to classes. Mm. And being a dance major and having those academic scholarships that doesn't work. I can't miss dance. You have to right. physically be in a dance class. Rude. So I have to start <laughs> withdrawing from my classes because I'm flunking out of them. Mm. I lose my full ride scholarship. Oh God. Yep. What, what year is this? is this sophomore? I would say this is like my junior, maybe beginning of senior year. Okay. Well, we could say that, but like, I didn't have enough credits to call it that really, you know? Yeah, but so, technically. Technically. And so, yeah, I, everything that I had worked so hard for, yeah, I started losing and, but I just really didn't care. At that point, all that really mattered to me was alcohol and the effect of alcohol and how I, what I had to do to get that. It fast forward, it's Thanksgiving weekend. My friend Kate is staying with me. So we're back home. We're at the bars in Scottsdale and we run into some of our friends, our guy friends. And we're thrilled because what are you guys doing here? So we all start drinking together at the bar and we were going hard. I remember that. I was drinking with purpose. And we go from that bar to another bar. We leave the second bar. I can't remember if we went to a third or if we just went back to one of their houses. We are out there making a lot of noise, just being loud college kids who are completely drunk. And uh, all of a sudden, this guy's mother comes out. His family was like, everybody has to go right now. I remember getting Kate in the car and we were both completely gone. I managed to put on my seatbelt, but we just pulled out and tried to get home. At one point, I look over and she's my friend is asleep. And I'm upset that she's asleep because I need help. We didn't have GPS at this point. So I'm trying to figure out where the hell I am. I feel lost. I'm shaking her. I'm looking over, shaking her, trying to wake her up. And next thing I know, I'm on a median. I hit one tree with my car, ricochet off that tree. And then my car wraps around the second tree that I hit. I don't know what speed I was going, but fast enough to bounce off like a pinball and wrap around another tree. 
my windshield was completely gone. There was glass all over me. My arms were cut up from the glass coming in. I don't know if it was because it's Arizona. So it could have been dust coming in or smoke. I still don't know to this day, but I thought it was smoke and that the car, I just had it in my head that the car was going to explode. My friend was fine. Thank God. She was still passed out. So I had to wake her up and we climbed out of the car. I don't remember how I feel passed out or really out of it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And so we climb out of the car again. My arms are bleeding, but that was it again. Neither one of us had any major injuries, which is a freaking miracle. So you guys are fine by some miracle. You get out of the car and cops arrive. Cops arrive. Neighbors heard it, of course. They had hopped the fence to make sure we were okay and, and stayed with us until the cops got there. When the cops arrived, the first thing out of my mouth was, you're gonna have to give me a DUI. So surreal. I still, it was almost like this moment of exhale for me in the weirdest way. It was like, oh, you caught me. Cool. Okay. Well, if I was your lawyer, I'd be like, oh, you dumbass. <laughs> for fuck's sake. <laughs> uh-huh. I'm okay, sure my right. lawyer yeah. did. Yeah. 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 And well, so actually, when I said that, my friend at the time who was there just was like, what are you doing? Don't say that. And I was like, and I just remember looking at her as well and saying, they're going to smell it on me. Yeah. My blood alcohol level was around, I can't remember if it's like a 0.3 or 0.4, but yeah, basically I was like 30 to 40% alcohol in my blood at that point. And that was after they had like taken me in. I was held overnight. So my friends come and pick me up at three in the morning, three or no, it was five in the morning. They come pick me up from, from jail. jail. And released. Mm-hmm. Not your parents. Not my parents. I don't, and I still don't know what happened. I guess I should talk to my parents about that. Like, where were you guys? I guess I just didn't know. They must not have known because they were still asleep when I got home, I think. And I had to, of course, tell them what had happened. My dad went and looked at my car the next day. And it was like one of the only times I've ever seen my dad cry. And he sat me down and he just started crying. And I was shocked to see this man who, again, not the kind of emotion I expected. And he said... You should be dead right now. All of the impact was at your driver's side door. It is a miracle that you're that you're alive. And if you are planning your days around alcohol and when you're going to get your next drink, you might be an alcoholic. And that was also the first time that I'd ever heard anyone say that in reference to me. And so it was absolutely a moment of clarity. And again, I think there are a lot of those along the way for me. Unfortunately, it was not the thing that got me sober, but it was a thing that stuck. So fast forward, Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving weekend is over. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We go back to school in between Thanksgiving and Christmas. And at this point, I'm like, I don't have a car. My friends are just even more done with me since I got in an accident with one of my friends in the car. Don't have scholarships anymore. Don't have the dance program. Like nothing. I It was like one of the last nights I was there and I was outside all of my friends. Because again, I would start a party if there was no party. They had all passed out. It was probably three in the morning at least. I had taken whatever was left over whatever liquor and whatever else and poured it into a big vase. I'm like, was sitting out on the balcony, drinking from this vase. And I had this song that I, I should have looked up the song, dang it. I had this song that I was playing on repeat and I was just sobbing. I was just sobbing uncontrollably. I hated myself. I couldn't hold back the emotion. I couldn't hold back the hatred anymore. I was so disappointed in myself. And this song was like the corniest song, by the way, but it was like about this girl who keeps giving pieces of herself away to men. 
And I just, I mean, that was like what I had been doing. I had been drinking and just trying to feel normal by being with men. And, and I am sobbing. I'm drinking. My friend happens to pop his head out and say, Hey, you know, Hey, Lens, it's been a really long night. Like you should probably come in and try to get some sleep and like, I'll set you up on the couch, like whatever, you know? And I just remember looking at this guy after I'm sobbing and being like, I look at him and I say, fuck you. I'm not done yet. And that was, you know, in reference. And then I just, and then it sank in and I was like, how am I not done yet? And I had the thought, and again, I don't know if it was like my higher power at the time or my ego, (laughs) I call it my higher power. Yeah. yeah. Um, Who knows who's to say, say. Um, but as soon as I had done that to my friend, I was like, what am I doing? There has to be more to my life than just for me to drink and die. Like there just has to be more. But again, for me, like mentally, yes. So I had that realization, but I don't think I was going to let it go. You know, I think I was going to keep going. My mom picked me up for Christmas break and it was just her. And she drove me to Cottonwood, (laughs) Tucson, to she wasn't checking me in it wasn't like a oh, you okay. know, no she cottonwood is a rehab um it was a, a great rehab it, very pricey <laughs> it can be yeah, very high so she, yes she had found a way for me to be able to go that wouldn't kill us financially but she said i want you to go just come with me and just look at it and tell me what you think and if you if you are willing to go we will do this and i when I say that I unleashed on this woman, I became the man, like I became my father, <laughs> right? I verbally assaulted her the whole way to rehab. I tore into this poor, sweet woman every which way. And then we get there and like an ass, I look around and I see everybody and they're, they just looked peaceful, which is a feeling that I personally had not had in a very long time. And I just remember I could like exhale for a minute and I was like, okay, I'll do it. But then I roll out the stipulation of, but I want to be home for Christmas and I want to spend it with Grammy and then I'll do it. And so that's what we did. I checked in on the 26th. I was there for 30 days. And I'm so grateful for it. It was what I needed. And it was what my father needed at the time. You know, during family weekend, when they're there, I confronted my father about the verbal abuse and about the, you know, all the things, because that's what you do. He was, he had no idea the effect that he had had on me. Of course. Yeah. And he was so taken aback. He fell into a deep depression, had anxiety. He started seeing a therapist himself or a psychiatrist. Interesting. Right. Medicated, started working a program himself. Wow. And really changed as an individual. And our relationship really changed as a result of that. So that was really, really cool. I also... So, okay. So 30 days rehab, I'm able to work on the trauma stuff too. They also took us to meetings. And so then I think 30 days are almost up. Great. Back to college. And how old were you at the time? This would have been... I was 21. Okay. Yeah. So I'm thinking I'm going to go back to college, get right back on the dance team with no scholarships. Like, who am I? And that everything's going to go back to normal. Like, okay, great. So I've mastered this. I can now like drink responsibly was my... <laughs> I think you missed some of the classes yeah. there. Some of the sessions. Uh, yeah, the drink like, responsibly session. I don't think I don't think they had that one. I'm just going like, to ease back into it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then I was sat down by one of the counselors and they just said, we think that you need aftercare. Uh, That's going to be like a three-month program. And I said, absolutely not. I need to get back to my friends. They show me this brochure with like a cottage on the beach in California. And I said, you're right. I think I do need aftercare. I think I should go. 
so yeah, so I'm out in California. I'm doing the 90 meetings in 90 days. I'm getting connected with girls. The program that I went through was really great as far as like female relationships. It was an all female aftercare. Makes a huge difference. Absolutely. I made friendships. I enjoyed going to meetings. I got a sponsor. I started working the steps. And then I met a boy. (laughs) (laughs) As we do. As we do. do. Yeah. Um, Your husband. I love um, it. So yeah, so I'm dating him, but I'm still making time for my program and all the things that I'm supposed to be doing. And then I have to go back to Arizona to handle my court stuff from the DUI. And they had deemed it an aggressive DUI because there was a passenger in the car. So while it was my first offense, it was it could have been a lot of time in jail. I was sentenced with two weeks in Tent City, Arizona. <laughs> with uh, Joe Arpaio? Sheriff Joe Arpaio, that son of a gun. Yeah, so Tent City is the place where they put you in the pink underwear and the striped suits. And I was on the side that was probably a lot of alcoholics. So there are two different sides to it. So I was on the less, the less violent. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, felony-ish. Also. Felony-ish. So we didn't have to wear the suits or anything, but uh, you're basically in these like tents out in the desert, in the desert heat. Why? It's supposed to scare oh, them straight, okay. I guess. You know, yeah. it's supposed okay. to be as much of a punishment as possible. Like you're outside all the time. Like this would have either been, I want to say like April or May, which in Arizona, it's already in the 90s or up to 100. So I just remember we would soak our clothes in the sink And then put them on, put them back on. And they had these big army fans at the end of each tent. And you would just like stand in front of it and just like try to be cool. By cool, I mean, it's cool temperature. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely didn't confuse those. Did um, I'm like, wow, that's really cool. Were you like, you're sober in fucking tent city. Like that's got to be an amazing, I would think that would be really great for your sobriety, to be honest. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But the thing is like when I went to tent city, I already had three or four months sober. Yeah. So yeah, like going there, I was already sober. I was already dedicated to being sober at that point. And yeah, that just solidified it even more. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. So you come back after tent city with a renewed dedication, I'm sure to, did you go back to the program that you were in? No. So I (laughs) moved in the classic. I did the classic early dating and sobriety. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. Just move right in. I just moved right in. Oh yeah. You and Dak moved in after tent city. Yeah. No. Yeah. He's like, this girl has three months sober and she just went to jail. And I think I'm going to make her my wife. (laughs) (laughs) I did it too. I did it too. I did it too. Oh, it's good. Oh man. So yeah, so I did that where you just like dive in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were together for a few years and then it ended. Of course, we know because otherwise you guys wouldn't be <laughs> We all but live remember, together happily. Yeah, that was, you know, really fortunately when I came back to California, didn't really feel like I had good girlfriends. And I remember crying and I, I would cry to Dak and, and I would just cry all the time. I just felt very lonely and I would pray for girlfriends. And really fortunately for me, probably like one to two, it took a couple years, but I had built this really amazing group of really amazing support system and this group of women that I'm still friends with to this day. Like we still do weekly meetings where we all jump on Zoom and I love them very dearly. But so yeah, so I had built this support system and fortunately... 
they were there when the relationship with Jack ended because that was very, you know, it's my first like sober relationship. It's all the things that it's, you know, supposed to be. And so it hurt very much when it ended. Did you see that coming? Like, was it? Yeah. You saw that coming. Yeah. Yeah. What's interesting about that actually come to think of it is that was during a time where the mortgage, everybody in, in our area, Doc included, were in the mortgage industry and making all that money. And I think a lot of people who were sober, I think there was a lot of people who were sober and made a lot of money very young and then lost absolutely everything. And I think there were a lot of like life lessons about what makes people happy and what like, you know, what matters and things like that in that, in that process. And I know you guys experienced that huge shift in the world. Yeah. And it was a huge shift in our relationship. I think he, Oh, that was tough. I mean, yeah, we are going from, you're on this incredible high and you're, you know, making all this money and we were traveling and nesting and doing all the, you know, all of these, we're getting expensive things. And, and then all of a sudden it's all taken out from under us. And there was a shift in him and I jumped in to kind of pick up the support of the relationship and the financial support of it. I think at one point I was like working three jobs just to like keep us. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it was like, actually, like I look back on it now and it is, it's, I don't think it's like a huge gift, but I think it was something that I needed to experience. I mean, like I get weird calling stuff a gift, like something like that, but, but yeah, it helped shape both of us as individuals, you know, and we're able to get through it without drinking. There's so many instances and sobriety. I mean, I've got 16 years sober, but it has, not been a breeze, you know, and like the things that we're able to, the hurdles that we're able to get over and not have to drink over that or not have to use over that. It's incredible. I mean, I think just to briefly touch on this, this is not the case for everybody in recovery. And and like, I know that I'm a super weirdo, you know, I think the tools that I have and the tools that you have in recovery, I think have allowed us to have a friendship in a way that most people would or do think is fucking weird. And I remember... And Dak, Dak thought I was... He, he didn't believe me. We would have these... He would get jealous about things and we'd have these conversations where he would say, well, what if I did, you know, did, you know, whatever you did, hung out with so-and-so. And I was like, like, I swear to God, I wouldn't care. And then he got a job where you guys were working together. I, I remember a girlfriend, I was like, are you worried? And I was like, I'm excited. Like, this oh is going to be great. And that was, I think that was the first time he was like, oh, she's fucking off her rocker. Like, you know, she's, oh, well, no, that wasn't the first time. But with this, I really just, I think it's such a beautiful thing. And I hope more people, I hope more people have the ability to love people and have things change and have it be okay and learn to have relationship. You know, not every ex is going to be your best friend, but I just think that to me, life is so much more peaceful when you can have love for people, no matter what the situation is, particularly in, in an ex-girlfriend situation. Yeah. I mean, so, and, and going back to that, so you were the puppet master of that, of Dak and I becoming friends again. Oh, that's I remember right. you encouraged him that's to right. reach out to me. Yes. I, he made an <laughs> amends and like, yeah, you were, and I remember that's him right. being like, Ashley really said I should do this, you know? That's right. This was like probably three years after yeah. we had split up though. Like it took a minute. Um, yeah. I mean, that's fair. But yeah, I think you were so supportive of us being friends again. And yeah, you're absolutely right. It's like out of respect, like for Dak and I, 
by the end of our relationship, we were just really good friends. You know, we were always really good friends. We always had that dynamic. And so that's part of that loss too, right? When that person's gone, it's like, oh, my friend. They died. They just disappear out of your life. It's so weird. Right. I miss my friend that's like sarcastic and funny and, you know. And so I was so grateful when that relationship came back around or at least presented itself to have that friendship. And then of course you were part of that deal too. And I just, I think you're the greatest. I, in fact, it's funny, like, a few weeks back, I don't, I was on the phone with Dak and I was being petty. And like, I'm only petty with Dak because like he knows I can be petty. And I don't remember <laughs> what we were being petty about, but like you were in the background and I didn't know you were in the background. And then you said something and I was like, no, I don't want Ashley to hear. Like, I don't want Ashley to know this about me. Like, <laughs> I want Ashley to think I'm like above it. <laughs> but yeah, so actually, like, I like you a little bit more than Dak. <laughs> So, I, won't, I won't tell him. He'll never know. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He'll never yeah. listen to this. No, ever, no. Yeah. Never. So yeah, I and thank you for that. Thank you for reconnecting us. And it's it's really nice to have both of you in my life. Yeah. So. Well, you know, the world doesn't always love how I see things around that. And I grew up in a family where my parents are friends with their exes who I know. And so I've had these like beautiful relationships. And I think it's really important for people to remember as it relates to relationships. And and just as a side, I have exes that I love. I love them. I don't want to be in a relationship with them. You know, like that part of it didn't work, but like there was, we were friends, we were partners. We had like, we had a relationship and I think it's really okay to like, like you loved somebody and to love them and then to be like, we're not going to be in a relationship anymore, but like you are a human. I care deeply for that. I don't know why people think that just goes away. Right. And I think it's the stigma of like, well, what about a romantic, you know? Yeah. It's a romantic thing. But if you don't trust your partner, this is, I mean, this is, and this is the piece. I was in a relationship where I was cheated on constantly and I did everything to like, I mean, shit, I I won't admit to like, (laughs) just like, really intricate, you know, booby trap kind of deal, whatever. (laughs) Like I did everything to try to stop it. Nothing I did made a difference. Right. Mm. And ultimately that lesson was, Oh, I, I really can't control this. Like if someone wants to cheat on you, they're going to cheat on you. And so I think, I don't know, I found it miserable being in a relationship where I was checking the phone, checking the email, blah, 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 the whole thing. And where every time the phone would ring, my skin would crawl. And I did that. And I was like, I don't ever want to do that again. So if I don't trust you, like we just can't do this. And we've had some like funny experiences over the years with that, where I'm just like, he's like, like, is this okay? Like whatever. And I'm like, look, we just have to start from that baseline of, of trust. And um, I wish more more people did that because I think they'd have a lot more peace. Yeah, no, absolutely. And even just from the standpoint of like, if you're, for me anyway, like if I'm going to be friends with an ex, I'm going to make sure that there is no romantic attachment there anymore. Otherwise, like, why would I do that to myself? I'm like setting myself up for potential failure. I didn't even think of that, but you're right. Yeah. Can you imagine the chaos that could ensue with something? Like, so yeah, I think it just... Yeah, that's true. Like, why would you... I guess people do it because they want to steal them away. But if, if your partner can be stolen away... Yeah. It's not your, <laughs> your partner. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. That's just my everybody's partner. Yeah. 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 I'm like, okay. Did you have a relationship? A lot of people object to 12 step and because of the higher power, the God piece. 
Was that a difficult thing for you? Or did you feel like you had a relationship before or higher power was super easy? That's a great question. I did have difficulty with it. I was, we went to church on like holidays growing up, right? Like we were that kind of church going family. And then I got really into, in junior high, I got really into church and I chose to be going, I was going to church three times a week. I was in the youth program. I was doing like the camp aways and things like that. And I just got really involved. I got baptized again. And then it was like when my drinking started taking off in high school, that's when I, especially when I got sober, I had already, I turned my back on any kind of religion, any kind of, you know, whatever I had, again, had worked for in that. I turned my back on the God of my understanding at the time, because it was really like a survival thing for me mentally. It's like, I'm going to turn my back on you before I can have any kind of like judgment because I'm taught that there's judgment. So basically I don't need it. So I had made that again, it's like the preemptive It's like me saying we're going to black out tonight. Instead, it's like, well, I don't need God, you know? So yeah. So my experience was positive with religion growing up. It was never anything scary for me. And then as a result of that, like guilt and shame, that's why I stepped away. But then it was hard for me to reconnect with my higher power, like the powerlessness thing. I mean, that, that was easy. I knew I was powerless. I knew that was like a huge thing. But then reconnecting or finding a higher power of my own understanding, that was more difficult for me to accept. Because for me, it meant like... And that God kind of shifted for me a little bit. Like I still say God, but it's really just like... It's love. It's not... It's a God of love. And it's someone that's like rooting for me, basically, you know, like, so that's how I understand it. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that. And I relate to that a lot. What does your life look like today, 16 years later? What's the Lindsay today got going on? I think for me right now, my life is just about reconnecting. That's like a big focus for me is community and reconnecting. COVID really, really got in my head for someone that's already like very much a germaphobe. <laughs> COVID. messed me up. And so, yeah. Yeah. So I really did kind of, I just kind of nested here, you know, I really stayed to myself through all of that. And so I'm just this year, I'm like branching out, reconnecting with people and just kind of getting back into all the activities and trying to find the energy to do everything all over again. Yeah, it sapped our energy because we weren't used to doing as much. And the isolation, I think, the isolation for alcoholics, you know, alcoholism, it loves isolation. It's, it's, you know, get in our head kind of deal. So it's really an honor to be in your life and to watch you grow and and see you do all these cool things. It really is. It's super cool. And your adorable pug. It's so cute. Thank um, you. I love it. It's just so cute. Ladybug. Ladybug. If you could give one piece of advice to a young person trying to get sober, maybe in their early 20s, trying to get sober, something maybe either someone said to you or you wish someone would have said to you, what would that be? Oh my gosh. One thing, well, dang. I will say for someone like getting sober, I was probably... I'll say two things. The first being your life will turn out so differently than what you think it will. (laughs) I had a plan for my life. Even when I was drinking, I had a plan for what my life would look like. And I thought my sobriety would change that plan. But I also had a plan for that. You know, like it's just plans on plans. And my life today is so incredibly different from anything that I could have imagined for myself. But I'm so content 
and happy with where I'm at today. And I'm able to look back on all of those crummy situations that happened in my drinking and in sobriety and see that they all led me here and that I have gratitude for all of that. You know, like that's the surprising piece of it is like the gratitude that I find in those times where I can't even see my way through them necessarily. So the other thing that I thought was really, really cool when I had about three years sober, my sponsor at the time, oh, I love her. She had a ton of time. She has a ton of time still, but she just embodied like ease and she would just like ooze out calmness and serenity. And I remember one of the first times I was working with her, she said, okay, so you've got the sobriety thing down. So like, what about life? What do you want to do with your life? Like, let's talk about that. And I was so taken aback by that. And I know that's not really like the steps that we work with someone, but for someone to present that to me and say, what else for you? Like, let's think more holistically. Let's talk about it all. And that was a game changer for me to like start focusing on those other aspects of my life. It was really cool. Focused on the recovery piece first, got that down and then... Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Put it. Let's talk about life. Well, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for sharing your story. Really, really appreciate it. And I know that we'll be talking about recovery for many years to come. We will. Thank you so much for having me. I just, I just love you and I'm grateful to be on. And thanks for having me. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. LionRock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code COURAGE for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.